Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Today, we're happy to have Jeff Edgers back to join us. Jeff Edgers writes for The Washington Post, and he has this wonderful article that just came out called The Search for the Perfect Sound. Vinyl is booming in the digital age, so why does the best way to listen feel just out of reach? Jeff, thank you for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, this is this thing that Doug and I talk about a lot, about vinyl. And we grew up with vinyl, and we're old enough to remember the noise and the clicks and the hassles. And yet there are people who think this is the best, and they go to great lengths to find the absolute best records. And this is a very long 6,000-word article, which is a lot for a newspaper. And you went to find the people with, let's say, the golden ears and the most expensive speakers in the world. Yeah, I mean, I... I saw this as not just vinyl, but vinyl is an important component to it. But basically, it was the idea that, you know, back in the 90s when the internets, as they call them, were invented, and we were so excited about having convenience and things we could carry around with us and MP3s. I loved Napster. You know, it was awesome. I could suddenly get all my Elvis Costello bootlegs that I had to go to New York and pay, like, way too much money for just at my computer. So you know, iPods, iPhones, MP3, all that stuff. We got this convenience for a whole generation, uh, but what we lost, sorry, I just realized my email was on. It made that sound. I'm going to start again, start that sentence again. So um, what we gained was this convenience, but what we lost was sound quality, which I didn't really even understand because I didn't care about it at all. But uh, in recent years, as I've been like, you know, locked in the house like everybody else, you start looking at your music and listening to your music and reading about it. And I realized there was this huge boom going on. And it wasn't just that quirky little like, ooh, people like records. It was like, you know, Nirvana's box set couldn't come out because there were not enough presses to press them. Like, it was a real boom. And then on the other hand, like, there was all this high-res audio that had been very mysterious to me that I finally was starting to understand how to use it and listen to it. And I could put it on and, like, hear the difference on my little piddly stereo. So look, I have a job at the Washington Post, the great news organization. I just started traveling on their dime and visiting people who <laughs> were, you know, everyone from like, you know, someone who was opening a record store to a dude who had like built these speakers that are $363,000 and seven feet tall. So that was the adventure and I just kept going. Yeah, that's the bit that stands out, the price of the speakers, obviously, for, for those of us who are mere mortals and can't afford these things. There is this, and we've talked about this a lot with Chris Conacher, who runs the Audiophile Style website. There is this search for a little bit better, a little bit more that goes on and that can go into extremes. But what I find interesting is the particular person who you went to who could hear the difference in quality of different pressings of records. And there's a video in the story of the Carol King record that he's listening to three different versions. And the most interesting thing, it's, it, was he in New York because he sounded so New York the way he, he said- was, He was Los Angeles. He was Oh, uh, okay. He yeah. sounded so New York the way he said, ah, that one's no good. <laughs> and he was like, I, how long was he listening before he actually answered? Did you cut- did you edit a lot out? Because it sounds like he listened for about 30 seconds before he gave an answer each time. Yeah, Tom Port, he's like he's an interesting figure because I like Tom Port a lot. All these audio people hate Tom Port because Tom Port basically says, and it's like part marketing, but also part his belief. His attitude is, 
all these new pressings, 45 RPM, half speed mastering, 180 gram, it's all a joke. That in reality, the best sounding records are older records. And then that each of those records in itself is like a snowflake. Like every press of every record is different. So like if a dude is like squishing the biscuit, the vinyl biscuit that you, you know, you make, if it's like one second shorter or longer, if the temperature's different in a room, if the machine is screwed, anything, anything can happen. So what Tom does is he goes out and he listens to like as many records of one record as he can, his staff does too, and then they rate the record that they call the hot stamper. Um, and the hot stamper is basically the best sounding record that they have. And then they put that record up on their website for like, you know, Pet Sounds, an old Pet Sounds record. It's not an original pressing, but it's the best sounding version that he's heard is $649. Now, here's the thing. All these people who don't like Tom, and that's really, everybody's he's insulted, which is like 80% of the world. And also the people who whose businesses depend on an embrace of new pressings they all slam him and say $649 for pet sounds. But here's the thing. You can just get your money back if you don't like that pet sounds. And I've bought a couple records off Tom. I bought a older Beach Boys record, which was like $119. And I bought a Credence record off him that he said was half of it was a hot stamper and half wasn't. Um, huh. Like one side was good and one bad? He has records where he says one side's good and one isn't. You know, sometimes he combines records. I bought... Those records are honestly, they're the best sounding versions of those records I've heard. So what you ask at the beginning is like, how does it work in the room? Well, you're in that room, he puts on a record, and there are some records you can immediately tell, like, you know, say, say for example, let's take Tapestry. He has a sweet spot. He doesn't just go and buy like 20 random tapestries. After years and years of doing this, he has an area of pressing that he says, this is the one that we'll find the hot stamper in. So if you put on a brand new you know, Carol King record, a brand new pressing of it, or a pressing by a company he thinks is terrible, you know, he'll almost immediately go, ah, this is wrong. This is wrong. The blah, 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 you know, the voice is wrong. You know, he'll, he'll be able to explain that. It's really in the nitty gritty. If you were to get like 20 pressings of like the Carol King record that's in the hot stamp area, that's when he really has to listen, go back to the record, go back to it again. But again, it's in his opinion, his ears are trained and he's been doing this a long time, and his staff's been doing this a long time, so they can find him. Does he only sell the one, or there is there a hierarchy of good, better, best, superlative uh, sort of arrangement? I mean, he sells the one Pet Sounds for $650, but is there one that's, it's not great, but it's okay, and you can get it for $150? Uh, yeah, he has, different, he has different ratings. And you have to read the site to get them all, but it's like white hot stamper with issues. White hot stamper, quiet vinyl, super hot stamper. You know, it's like they're all, you know, they all have, and, and, and you know, his nearly white hot stamper, right? It's like rare books with some shelfware and minor foxing, that sort of thing. And then also, like, there's a pecking order, too. I mean, like, I'm, I'm looking now, like, Led Zeppelin Four, which is, like, one of those, like, canon records of the rock world. You know, the white hot stamper he has on quiet vinyl is $949 there. Well, when I go down to, like, Peter Gabriel self-titled one, you know, super hot stamper, 199. So, you know, it's like everything has a price on it. Now, again, people are like, what a ripoff. But if you're like Jim Ursay, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, and you really love like Led Zeppelin 2, 
and you have a billion dollars, you're not going to be going to a record store and like searching for the Robert Ludwig pressing all over Indianapolis. You're going to just call up Tom and say, here's two grand. Get me the best sounding copy of Led Zeppelin two. And if you don't like it, just send it back for your money. Now, all of these are old pressings. So when's the sweet spot? Is it the 70s? Does it end around the beginning of the CD era? You know, the great thing about uh, Tom's thing is that there are no rules, I'd say. So like, for example, um, I was checking out, I don't want to give away all his hot stuff. It's like he keeps his a secret. So it's like not my job to do such a thing. But like, for example, like, I think like, who's next? I was listening to a copy of who's next that um, it was like a rejected hot stamper, but it was in the ballpark, I would say. So it was like a German pressing of who's next from like the early eighties. I would never have thought that would be the one, you know, or pet sounds. I just said it. Tom will be very clear when you read the, the description of it on his site, you are not getting an original copy. You aren't. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, yeah, it's not a first edition, first pressing, which most people think is going to be the best. And sometimes it is. There's no yeah. question. But like jazz records, like he'll choose an OJC, which if anybody who's familiar with jazz is like a lot of the, you know, Riverside and, and, and 50s and 60s jazz records were reissued in the 80s as OJC. And he'll pick one of those as his hot stamper. So it really, you know, what Tom would say is I don't care about the pressing. This is not about making an investment. This is about hearing the best sounding record you can hear. You know, it just sounds to me like Donald Trump yeah. suggesting what his value is. And it can be <laughs> arbitrary whenever he wants, because who's going to argue with him unless, you know, he's taken to court and tempted to prove it. But how is he going to prove it? Because he's the, he's the only one with the magical bat ears. That's not true, because the, the reason that's not true is I, I always go back to this because I believe deeply in the idea of money back guarantees. If you get that record, honestly, if you get good like, point, when I said when I, I first called him, I said, Tom, this sounds ridiculous. And he sent me like the Credence record that was one half side half stamper. And he sent me Jimmy Buffett. I hate Jimmy Buffett. I mean, not personally. Maybe I would <laughs> if I knew him, but I just don't like Jimmy Buffett. But that Jimmy Buffett record sounded amazing. And the Credence record, which I played against my Credence record, which was clean and old, just sounded incredible. So if I had listened to the record and thought it stunk, I would have just sent it back. You know, yeah. uh, I've heard plenty of records. Uh, you know, what Tom, what Tom taught, the thing that Tom taught me that I think is important is that not to buy hot stampers because I am a man with a family and a dog and chickens. I can't do that. But what he taught me to appreciate is sometimes the older versions of these records are, and sometimes the hype stickers that you see on the new records are, are not things to be believed. And the older versions are the ones to go for. And so like when I grabbed, um, I was at a, a record store near here and I was doing a story on David Burns. So I, they had an original, you know, an old pressing of Talking Heads 77. Now I had one from like the 2014. I bought the 2000, the 1977 one. I think it was $30, not that much. And I brought it home and I put it on my turntable and I played it against the one from 2014, which I assume was digital based. I don't know. And it just kicked its butt. It was so much better. And it was obvious. It wasn't like I needed to be like uh, some expert or something. I just, I put it on. It was obvious. 
things were tighter, the music, the voices were better. It's just a better record. You know, there's no way around it. So that's kind of what Tom taught me, I'd say. Yeah, the whole question of mastering is really complicated. You're a bit younger, so you may not remember the early CDs that came out that sounded really terrible. It's because they were mastering the tapes for LP and putting them on CDs. And things like the RIAA curve wasn't taken into account on CD. And so we had a number of years of crappy CDs. I still have a Born to Run that sounds like it's coming through a mono transistor radio from, from those days. So you do have all of these issues of, you know, if a new one is analog and then digital and then analog, and is it well mastered? And there are so many decisions that go into each remastering. What was it in the 90s, the two Beatles best ofs that everyone hated, the blue and the red albums, that everyone thought the remastering was terrible? Or the recent Chicago Live at Carnegie Hall, which I bought, fortunately, sold on eBay, which was unlistenable. So you have all these issues of mastering that go beyond the sound of a record itself. Well, funny, you know, so there's this electric recording, because that's a very good point. This electric recording company. Now, I was just fascinated by this company. The New York Times did a sort of breathless story on them which was electric recording company is run uh, owned by this guy, Pete Hutchison in London. He has a big beard. He's very mystical seeming, very nice guy. I like talking to him. So he restored all this equipment from like the fifties. And what he does is he'll get the master tape of, um, you know, John Coltrane, uh, giant steps or a classical record, or he did, uh, he did the white stripes. He did love forever changes. And he'll put this, make a record that's um, directly off of the tape and he'll do it uh, and put out 300 copies. That's it, they'll never repress them. Each copy sells for like $400 and they sell out immediately. Uh, and then they end up on eBay for like $2,000, you know? So yeah. um, they're, they're, and they're beautiful. Like they come in this like incredible, beautiful restored uh, jacket. And it just feels like, boy, I've got something special here. So. I brought that to Tom Port, and Tom Port is like, this is terrible. You know, he just was like putting, it's like, You're, this is my electric recording company record. Like I had this one like copy of Brilliant Quarters that I was carting around from state to state to like play it, Brilliant Quarters with Thelonious Monk record. And, you know, I played against the OJC, which cost me $30 from the uh, Preston, like 82. And then I'd played against like an original pressing, which is a little scratchy, but I had it. Um, so uh, I couldn't really understand that. And um, what was interesting is I wrote to Pete Hutchison uh, and I said to him, who are these guys, Chris Potter, CJ Potter, I think, and Guy Davey, they're listed as the mastering engineers. And, you know, to me, the short way of explaining mastering engineers, you guys know, I'm sure, but like, it's just the guys turning the knobs when they're putting, you know, figuring out how to mix the, mix the record. So um, I wrote to Pete Hutchison, I'll just read you the email. He said, he said, worth noting that whilst, like he's British with a beard, he says, whilst, you know what that's like. Whilst Chris Potter and Guy Davey are quote-unquote mastering engineers, their role with respect to ERC is purely that of a transfer cutting engineer. This is because we do not undertake any processing during direct cut from tape to vinyl. Wow, that's interesting. Now, the reason that's interesting is uh, it's incredibly, I don't know who does that. It's incredibly authentic, you could say. It's extremely true to tape and it completely cuts out someone who I think is an important part of the process. When we see all these new records and they say mastered by Bernie Grunman, you know, the guy who did Tapestry and, and uh, Thriller and Purple Rain and, 
and uh, Dr. Dre are, are mastered by Kevin Gray. They're, they're pitching to the audiophiles. This mastering engineer is almost like a, another member of the band. This guy is saying, we don't even do that. We're just, we want it to be the most authentic possible. So, you know, when I put that record up against these cheaper versions, I got to say, in some of the really expensive systems that I went to hear it on, it sounded really dead and flat to me. A little more dead and flat to me on my record player than the OJC, which is $30. One guy, Michael Fremer, that audiophile pioneering audiophile writer, and he loves the electric recording company. When I went over his house and sat and listened, I will say it did sound much more alive and more breathy and special and all that stuff. But, you know, I read the story in the New York Times and not to slam the New York Times. They're an excellent newspaper. I enjoy their work. That was like a totally like this is it, if you read that story, you would think the only thing you should do in your life if you like music is get records from the electric recording company. Yeah. Uh, mastering is important because the, the, the sound isn't entirely finished when it's on the tape. Plus, if these were master tapes, they're old, so they've got some degradation. I, I think a, a lot of this is capitalizing on the idea of artisanal items, isn't it? Like you talk about one called Craft Recording that makes a small batch series of records. And that sounds so Brooklyn neckbeard pale ale, right? And how much of that is just marketing for something that's chic, sells out really quickly? How much of it is the demand they've created and how much really sounds that much different? Well, the question is, so, so how much different? It's like, all those things you just mentioned, I mean, Bernie Grandman's in my story, and this guy is the one who makes all the, you know, he's 78 years old, he's the one who's doing a lot of these remasterings, and he even says, making a like a, a perfect record is almost impossible. You know, make, I think he says making a great record is almost impossible. So just keep that in mind. So the thing is, like, there's a couple things that happened at this point with these records, and it happens with Analog Productions, which is really a, you know, premier reissue label as well. They don't, uh, you know, like I, I remember those Dynaflex records in the 70s. You get the record, it was like a Frisbee. But they sounded pretty awesome, but they didn't care about packaging. There was like a sleeve that had all those pictures of all the other records you could buy from the record company or some ad or something. And um, these records are meant to sit on your shelf and, and, and be like works of art. I mean, I remember getting the Smile Box set a few years ago, the Beach Boys Smile Box set. It had like a whole like panoramic vision of this of this like fictitious street from smile that was you know inside you know in plastic or something um you hear my dog barking yeah it's okay hey, it's okay the heck man dogs, dogs sound great dogs, dogs are fine. space yeah podcast it makes right, it sound real I, yeah well i don't really like them uh no i like <laughs> that dog he's a nice little dog um so you know the thing is this craft batch recording thing they are beautiful, beautiful boxes. I mean, we just had this controversy we wrote about with Mobile Fidelity. Yeah. And, you know, these one-step um, records that they put out. And basically, what, just to shorten it, I mean, one-step means you're cutting out a part of the process, so you're getting closer, theoretically, to the original tape. So those boxes are beautiful. They come, you know, they come with a piece of art in them. They, they're big. They, ha You know, and the question is, are they good records? You know, it's like, I call it like record porn. And the reality is yeah. there are some records that come and, you know, you, or you find them and you're just like, Oh my God, this looks so amazing. This is so beautiful. I love looking at this thing. It has nothing to do with the sound, but it's packaged so incredibly. Yeah. I think a lot of people um, think of music as like baseball cards. 
They don't play baseball, but they like collecting the cards and they like looking at the information. They like having the cards and putting the cards in different arrangements and things like that. But the sound is like a secondary sort of thing. The other thing about sound is we've had a producer on our show, a good friend of ours, who used to say, look, by the time you get the record or the CD, it sounds the way the producers and the creators wanted it to sound. And yet people are still looking for ways to make it sound even better than that. Well, I, I mean, so a couple of things on that. One is um, there's a record company called Intervention Records. Um, and uh, I talked with the guy who runs Intervention Records. So um, he reissues, really tries to only reissue analog, you know, only off tape, directly from tape um, reissues. So he did the Flying Burrito Brothers first record, which is an amazing record. You know, Graham Parsons got wheels on it, Chris Hillman, um, great record. But he, he said, um, I have a real, the version we did is really good. You should listen to it. It's different. So I was like, oh, interesting. So he sent me the record. I bought it. Um, and when it came, I put it on versus my A&M version of that record, which, I, you know, it's imprinted on my brain. And it's really interesting. It sounds different. No question about it. And I wrote him about it because I was like, look, this sounds really different. Like the bass is really much more pronounced. Um, it just isn't thin. It feels thin when I listen to the A&M. And then part of me is like, maybe they screwed up the record or like, should they have done this with the record? Because this is not how the record sounds. And he said, look, those A&M reissues were not done. I'm sorry, those A&M original records of that, it's great songs, great band, great music, but it's not what's on the tape. It's not the right way. It's not the way it's supposed to sound. That's one example. Joe Harley, he's in. He, he's a, a big in the jazz world and the reissue world. He uh, works on the Tone Poet reissues that Blue Note does. Um, which are quite uh, acclaimed. And Joe Harley, so I interviewed him. He was sitting in a room across from what he said was racks of original Blue Note pressings of jazz records worth, you know, who knows how much those bad boys are worth, but a lot. And he said, my records are all, the ones we make though are much better. And I'm like, what? And he said, look, um, the equipment at the time was limited. And when you put on one of those records and you compare it to the master tape, they're different. The horns sound different. The bass sounds different. They sound different. They were not able to capture accurately what was on that master tape because of the technology in those days. Now, that's really interesting because here's the thing. If I have Lee Morgan, the Sidewinder, and I you know, have it from 1963, that is emblazoned on my brain how that sounds. I don't feel like, hey, Lee Morgan's horn doesn't sound right or like the drums aren't right or whatever. But Joe would argue that they are off in some way, or they can be better in some way. So what do you go for? You know, so that's, that's kind of, that's the debate. And, you know, honestly, it's like, all of it is subjective anyway. It's just mm. what you want to hear. I happen to love, like, I got a copy of Lee Morgan's A Sidewinder at my local record store. It was sealed from like 1964. And I love that record. It sounds perfect to me. It doesn't pop, whatever. I'm fine with that. What I'm thinking of is you take Kind of Blue, 1959. Yes, they were limited in the technology, but they made an extraordinary record. I don't want to hear a Dolby Atmos mix of that record today. I don't care who makes the Dolby Atmos mix. It's not 
the music that I've been listening to for decades. It's not the music that Miles Davis wanted. He knew what the limitations were in the studio or um, Tio Macera, his producer, knew what the limitations were, and they were fine with that. So altering it in any way, whether it's just a subtle remastering, which might be okay, or changing things a lot, it it kind of, it's historically deceptive, isn't it? And I mean, I'm even a purist. I'd rather listen to Kind of Blue and Mono anyway, because that's the way that it was originally mixed. Yeah, I mean, none of these artists are around, or most of them aren't around, right? And the, and the other thing is that even if they are around, it's like Carol King is not getting into the reissuing, remastering of her own record, I don't think. so. And they're old enough that their hearing isn't that good anyway. <laughs> well, You know what? Probably. I don't know. It's true. Uh, you look at Neil Young. He's got severe hearing loss, and he's talking about how bad MP3s sound. Well, the question, so I don't know this answer, but I, I, I was kind of horrified at some point to learn that, like, you lose your hearing or elements of your hearing just naturally, no matter who you are at a certain age. The question is, are there things that you're picking up on records, uh, you know, levels that you're picking up on records at a younger age that you can't pick up at, you know, 74? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, look, Bernie Grunman's remastering records, he's 78. Tom Port. Who wrote a letter? Who wrote a who wrote a comment thing to our uh, story saying Bernie Grundman's seventy eight. He shouldn't be mastering records. He's yeah. sixty. You know, um, Michael Fremer, who is uh, you know this premier audiophile writer, is seventy five. I'm fifty one. So I don't know the answer to such a thing. But maybe, but maybe the guy who's remastering, who's seventy eight, is looking at the EQ on a screen, so he knows where the things are that he can't even hear. It's well, entirely you know, possible. It's like, but I don't know what the state of his ears is right now, but I will say that um, the records he puts out are pretty excellent. Like they sound very good. So whether it's him making it like a political campaign or and, and sort of living vicariously through that or him really hearing it, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that that guy has, I mean, what's interesting is some of those records like Young Shakespeare, um, he has this guy, Jamie Howarth, who has planted processes that is a digital digital process um and jamie really uh has has pushed this and um believes that it makes records better um he, he worked on that record so it's like you know and, and jamie also did there's a um a craft recording version of um uh that's coming out that jamie worked on he worked on some Joni mitchell he worked on dire Straits. whatever the point is neil young uh still has stuff that isn't all tape you know? Yeah. But it sounds good. Young Shakespeare sounds amazing on vinyl. Yeah. You, you mentioned the plangent process, and that's really interesting. The Grateful Dead's been using that since probably their very first official live releases in the 90s. What it does is it detects the 50 hertz or 60 hertz hum on a tape and fixes the speed of a tape. It takes it digitally and fixes the speed, which corrects the pitch of everything. And that's one reason why the Dead's live recordings sound so much better, because you don't get that wah-wah that you get in old tapes from other things. So it's, it's, it's transparent, but what it does at the beginning of a remastering session is quite powerful. I want to talk about your bank balance, though, because you replaced your Pioneer SX737 with a vintage Macintosh 1900. What did that cost, the Macintosh? Uh, well, so that's a question that I have to... It's a complicated answer because I bought the Macintosh <laughs> for like, I think it was $900 maybe. 
And then I, oh, that's then not I blew bad. it up by mistake. Okay. I, um, okay. I bought, I just didn't really know what I was doing. So I bought like a bunch of speakers to try out on it. And one of the set of speakers, I think it was like powered speakers, and it blew like something inside the Mac. So it didn't work. So I had to then send it to um, Audio Classics, which is in New York and does specialty work. Must have been like a hundred bucks to mail it off and maybe 450 to get it fixed. And then when I got it back, it worked beautifully. So that, what did we just call So that wasn't huge, but you got a $2,500 turntable? No, you took a restored Thorin's TD2500 that was $2,500 and you changed it for a Technics XP10. Yeah. So I love the Thorns. I bought that again, another internet purchase. It was a pretty good purchase, though it needed a little bit of tinkering. Uh, this guy in New Hampshire named uh, uh, Dave Vinyl Nirvana does this incredible job on these Thorns turntables. So I got this turntable and I, you know, I like, I love that turntable, but then a friend of mine who's a who's like really my friend Ben in New York, he's an architect, he's got a little more scratch than I do, if you know what I mean. So Ben, like, he's gone like full force into this thing. So Ben had the SP10, which is you know considered like a top-notch turntable, and um he wanted to upgrade. And so he was building his own plinth, you know, the giant thing that the turntable, you know, the motor rests in. So he like built this plinth in Virginia and was like, he sent me a picture, it was on like a on, on like a, a it was what do you call those things that have to lift forklift? It was on a forklift. It was like a nine hundred and eighty thousand pounds, whatever. So then he said, "I'll sell you my other one." And you know, to to defend, not to defend, to praise Ben. I mean, Brent, Ben gave me a deal on that thing. I mean, he had had all sorts of stuff done to it. Has a great arm on it. It's a great, great turntable beyond my wildest dreams. And uh, I had my friend Patrick pick it up from him. And because uh, he was in New York, because Ben wouldn't send it to me. He said, like, it has to be physically delivered. So when my friend Patrick was coming, he, he drove by and put the pieces in the trunk and then brought it out here. And then I had it assembled. Then I had a guy, I paid a guy named Jim Fuller to set the cartridge up because I, I just, it's like, I don't know how to do, I know how to set up a car. Like I, I did it on my cheap return table. I put a cartridge in, but I just felt like this was like the Cadillac of, of turntables. So I had him set that thing up. But it's amazing. Um, and then by that point, I had traded in, no, I sold my Mac 1900 to a guy in San Francisco. I took that money and I bought this Rogue Audio Cronus Magnum 3, uh, which is a tube uh, amplifier um, and uh, sounds quite fantastic. And then, I'm sorry, I had these Harbeth speakers, Harbeth, you know, people in the audio world love Harbeth speakers. And so I had those, but they were like not really working right. And I talked to the folks at Folk, I looked at all these different like smaller, I have bookshelf speakers, sorry people, but like I wanna have my, my stereo in my living room. I wanna hear it where stuff is going on and I just can't like kick everybody out of my family. So I have these bookshelf speakers. So I talked to a bunch of companies and um, Focal Area suggested these bookshelf speakers. So I bought them off, off them and uh, I actually tried them and then I bought them. I mean. The great, I have to say this about the audio world. These people writing stories, and it's great they're writing stories, but it's a lot of free stuff. And um, I can't take free stuff. So like the way it would work is like Cambridge Audio would like let me use their DAC because I don't know how to use one of those. 
And then I would figure out, oh, God, this thing's amazing. So then I'd be like, hey, can I buy this? And they'd say, yeah. And then we'd figure out how to buy it. So I did. So I got the focal area speaker. So that is my setup. Did I, did I explain that properly? But if I showed you a picture, the other thing about it is like every time I got this stuff, I don't have a huge space because we have a living room. So it's like I had to have my, my friend Corey come over, the carpenter, and he like put in these special uh, special shelf for the SP10 because it's like 120 pounds. Uh, it's like braced to the wall. And we just moved all sorts of stuff around the cabinet has like it's a bookshelf with cabinets and the doors are on special hinges. What a pain. I never want to upgrade at all. I'm you you are audio whipped. <laughs> no, but like, look, I got to tell you something. It sounds amazing to me. And yeah, I don't know how yeah, much yeah. it is when you do the math. I don't know what I did. I spend six thousand dollars, maybe, but like probably around that. Well yeah. worth it. I'm a grown man and I love music. Yeah, I had a couple pairs of focal chorus speakers, which was the predecessor of the area, I think, and they are wonderful. I remember when I bought the first pair. I was living in France. Focal was a French company, and I went to a hi-fi place, and they played me all these different speakers, like six of them, and the focal were the most neutral that I heard, and I really liked their quality. How how likely are you apt to play your vinyl as much as you did when you first had vinyl? Or did you ever first have vinyl? Did you have vinyl as a kid, as a teenager? Yeah, I always yeah I had, I had record. I mean, I had tapes and records when I was. Kid. Yeah, yeah I so I mean, but I mean, we used to play records until they just were flat discs. Yeah, but nowadays. Does anybody listen to vinyl like I'm going to play that record again? I'm going to play that record again. I'm going to play that record again over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I play the same record over and over again, but I definitely listen to vinyl. I actually was thinking about it today because I was getting up and I was like hanging out in the living room and I was I wanted to put some music on. And I was just thinking about how how I don't use my DAC as much as I should. Because I love the thing I love about the the DAC is that I can put um, I programmed a bunch of radio stations in like. There's a cool one from New Orleans. I have my daughters on a, she's going to college here and she has a radio show. So I put it in there. It just comes in so crystal clear. So um, that's what I think. I, I use my record player every day, all the time. And I, I usually have a stack of like maybe 10 records next to it that are the ones I'm listening to right now or in my most anal way, which I'm hoping to work away from this now that the story is done. But like, I'll have like the new Roxy music best of and an old one to listen to which one sounds better. So stupid, but it's just who I've become. Um, so yeah, I listen, I mean, I listen to records differently. I mean, I used to, I'm not a 13 year old kid sitting on Tommy Sutherland's, you know, uh, you know, lawn with a boom box, listening to Black Flag the first four years, a hundred times. But I mean, I am someone who is cooking or like hanging out or talking to people. And, you know, I, I put on music as much as I can. Okay, Jeff Edgers, the article is The Search for the Perfect Sound. It's in the Washington Post. There'll be a link in the show notes. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. As usual, at the end of every episode, we'd like to pick a piece of media that we are currently interested in. Kirk, what's your next track pick? I watched a movie the other day that I haven't seen in decades, Hard Day's Night. I subscribe to this service called Mubi, M-U-B-I, and they have foreign films and art house films and festival films and all that. And they come up with things like that every now and then. It looked like it had been recently restored because it was really good quality. I can't remember the last time I saw this and it was fun. It was seeing the Beatles with their self-deprecating mode and the kind of, you know, the kind of looniness that they had in 1964 before they were jaded and, you know, things went 
totally, you know, crazy after Ed Sullivan and all that sort of stuff. It's a dumb story. It's a vehicle. It's a 87 minute long music video. But what's interesting is there are a lot of songs that they only did like a minute of because they didn't stop and play all the songs. There was one in a train where they did, I think, almost a whole song. Then there's the stuff in the studio at the end, because the story is that they're on their way to a studio to do a couple of songs. Interesting bit of trivia I saw on Wikipedia. One of the young extras in the theater, in the studio watching, so there's all these young boys and girls screaming and all that. One of the young extras was Phil Collins. What's your next track pick? Well, uh, I would have picked Phil Collins, but I can't think of a good album. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I'm sure if I thought about it, that'd be a good one. Um, I'm going to be listening to Herbie Hancock's 1983 Future Shock. Why? Well, um, Herbie Hancock has always been around. I mean, I remember when he was playing, you know, real jazz, as it were. And then he kind of did the pop jazz stuff with, uh, well, not the pop jazz, the Mahavishnu jazzy sort of stuff. And then he started doing his own stuff and i think everybody has the headhunters album everybody loves that record my father had that record for goodness sake but um in 1983 he put out future shock it was the first of of a few albums that got some grammy attention i don't think future shock won any grammys but the albums that came afterwards did future shock has the famous rocket song on it that uses the uh, synthetic uh, disc swishing and things like that very popular in the video didn't get a lot of radio airplay but i mean it was still a, quite an innovative album and as i said uh it led to uh, bigger and better things for herbie hancock later on but future shock has a lot of great songs on it and a lot of guys i knew back in the day had that record and we listened to it a lot i've been ignoring it for so long because i just kind of want to avoid rocket it's kind of overplayed but uh, i'm anxious to hear the rest of it and the other reason i'm anxious to hear it is because i just signed up for cobas and uh i figured that would be a good album to uh, test drive Kobas on. So anyway, that's what I'll be listening to. Herbie Hancock, Future Shock is my next track. You have been listening to episode number 241 of the next track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget... To support the next track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps the whole shebang going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.